Would you please open up your Bibles to the book of Acts, please? And uh, we will read through the text once before we actually teach through it, starting in verse 32. 9, chapter 9, verse 32. I have this terrible habit of speaking quite quick, and in a room where everything bounces, I'm going to have to do my best to discipline myself to speak slower. All right, if you've got it, if you've got, if you're at Acts chapter 9, verse 32, why don't you say hallelujah? That tells me you've got it. Look at that. All right. Read along with me, if you would. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. Now it came to pass, as Peter went through all parts of the country, that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. And there he found a certain man named Aeneas who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately. So all who dwelt in Lydda and Shachon saw him and turned to the Lord. At Yopa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas, which all of us think that's very unfortunate. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Yopa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Then Peter arose and went with them, and when he had come, they brought him to the upper room, and all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and the garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all the apartment, and many believed on the Lord. And so it was that he stayed many days in Yopa with Simon Atano. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we read in Psalm 133, Behold how good and how pleasant, beneficial it is for the brethren to dwell together in unity. In this allotted time, redeem every breath, every second, as we have our family reunion here today, with you as the focal point always. We pray you would break the hardest heart, open the blindest eye, speak to the deafest through the deafest ear. 
brings salvation and repentance and enlightenment and encouragement. God, ignite your body today to start a wildfire in Maidstone that brings a revival in Kent. So have your perfect way we would pray today. Do your perfect work. So take me and get me out of your way. Immerse me in your Holy Spirit that you would be seen and come upon me that you do the work. Captivate us in your word today so that we could be forever changed. We commit this time to you and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today as I would any, don't just believe me. Don't ever just assume that what I say is the truth because a guy with a mic, or he's American, especially if he's American, don't just believe him. But search the scriptures. If God's people were equipped with God's word, all of the fruity, crazy, wacky, non-biblical stuff would at least have the right type of resistance so that a very lost world that looks out and thinks of us a lot like a Sort of like one of those crunch bars that you get at like a mountain place where it's like all fruits and nuts and flakes. Some people actually think that's the church. Then it would really shave off a lot of the nutty stuff and what they would find is the meat that should be here. Well, now I've got this problem. I need to drop you and I'm propping you in the context of something nine chapters deep in. So I have to do a very quick recap. Jesus promised that the church would be empowered in Acts 1.8. That the Holy Spirit would come upon his people and they would be empowered. It was never the church's job to empower. It was the church's job to equip. It was God's job to empower. And he said when the Holy Spirit came upon them, they would become one distinct thing. Does anyone know what that distinct thing would be? Witnesses. Materias is the word in the Greek. It literally means evidence. And this is something I've learned living in a very troubled world around me, traveling the world and planting churches, is that the church is still busy trying to come up with a new argument while the world around us is starving for evidence. And the best case in any courtroom, be that the jury of a human heart, or just that within the bounds of a legal setting, is a great evidence pool. You can have a pretty weak lawyer in a great evidence pool and have a slam dunk case. You can have a great lawyer and no evidence and still lose. And the church is so busy trying to argue that they're all being heard but not seen. And the church loses that focus. By chapter two, at the feast of the first great harvest, Shavuot. They'd been practicing for 1,400 years, and on that day, 120 people in an upper room are empowered, just like Jesus promised, and they became evidence. Peter stands up to the gathered, curious crowd, says, This is actually complete fulfillment of Scripture, Joel 2, Psalm 16, 110. And we see the first great harvest of human souls. 3,000 people accept the gift of Jesus Christ. For 1,400 years, we'd have been rehearsing that during the Shalosh Reglaim. We were forced as men to come, if you will. Think about this. We have a God that says, how about three times a year you come over my house for a barbecue for a week long? I think, 
What a great God to serve. And the church erupts into this force. Fast forward eight years. Now the once thriving church, burgeoning with promise, has lost its purpose. A church commissioned devolves into a church complacent. Jesus taught me through the church in Sardis that you can have all kinds of activity and animation and it does not denote aliveness. And the church missional now has become the church maintenance and ministers become managers and we forget that we're family now. With a family name and a family business. And in the 30 plus years we've been doing this, I have never not loved what I get to do. But I remember from the very beginning God saying, if you ever think that the glory days are behind you, you are on the wrong trajectory in any relationship. So such digression demands a divine response. Enter the ministry of misery. If God wants to get you off the hob, what's the most effective way to do that? How about turn it on? It'll get you off again. And can I say dangerously, God wants you miserable when you're running from him. Because you were not created to live without him. And no matter what you fill that space with, it will never be enough. And if we're honest enough, we'll get there. So through his prescription, which is persecution, the church is scattered. How do you get a bunch of people out of a room? Make it miserable to be there. And those went, as we read, preaching the gospel everywhere they went. Except, ironically, the apostles. Which means the sent out ones, apostelas. And the sent out ones, on the other hand, stay. Don't you find that a bit, don't you find that a bit ironic? And they tend to the body of Stephen, who had just been murdered for his faith. Look at the dichotomy that arises as we get near our space here. We have those that are now sent out preaching, thriving, and you have those that are tending to a dead body, carrying the corpse, or seed scatters. The term for them to scatter, by the way, diospero is the word, it literally means to scatter seed. So the Christians, innocents of persecution, fled, and as they fled, they were like seeds scattered everywhere, watching things erupt. Meanwhile, there was a group of people that, if you will, were sort of the experts that were sort of tending to the corpse. The problem is, the church now that had been in Jerusalem sort of becomes headquarters. And it says in Acts 8.14, turn there for a moment, so at least you can know I'm not making this up. In Acts 8.14, it says, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria, the area north, by the way, had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. I'll ask some simple questions, and hopefully they should be with simple answers. Occasionally, there'll be one you have to be careful to read. Here's this one. The church in Jerusalem sends two guys north, for what it's worth, roughly 35 miles, 56 kilometers north. Who are the people they send to Samaria? Peter and John, you got that, right? I, I used to teach secondary school for years. I actually want you to get the right answer. I just want you to know that. And I find it interesting because the apostles have become adjudicators. Have you noticed that? The Jerusalem church has morphed into an accrediting agency instead of an equipping one. Now, we're young here, so 
Don't let that ever happen. Don't forget your family. Because families are always full of checkered and colorful people. There's always the crazy Uncle Howell that gets crazy and falls asleep in the potato salad. And then there's that person you don't actually know actually came until you look at the picture. And you're like, oh, she was there. You know what I'm saying? There's room in the family for all of that. We see that here. Peter and John go up there to check out the situation, and they become, in essence, church code inspectors. And what they discover is Samaria is actually quite the thriving church, which, by the way, was what Jerusalem used to be. Look at verse 25, chapter 8, 25. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they, and who are the they, by the way, those two blokes? Peter and John, returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. So Peter and John now have to head down south. By the way, Samaria is due north, for what it's worth, again, roughly 56 kilometers, due north of Jerusalem. And now they get to head down, and they're going to hit every stop on the way. Get themselves a quick chippy, share Jesus with the people in the area, head down further, continue on. But the interesting thing is they're not going to go straight down, at least not both of them. And what he tells us in this sort of capping verse, verse 25, is that sort of they went and they visited a lot of places on the way down, but God's going to highlight two of them. And that's what we really have in our text here, by the way, 32 to 35, Lida, and then 36 to 43, Yopa. So God's like, of all the places they visited, let me show you two of them specifically, because they have a very distinct, and by the way, they're very strong in contrast. I want to show you these two places and why these were so profound. Okay, I think I've done enough of that. Take a look at it for a moment, verse 32. Now it came to pass, as Peter went through all parts of the country, now wait a minute, who are we missing? John, thank you. Did you notice that, right? Remember, Peter and John went up, and all of a sudden, all we're getting is Peter now. So, well, wait a minute. Why would that be? Okay, I'm going to ask some of you Bible scholars a couple questions, see if you can pull these out. Would John have any reason to go specifically straight down to Jerusalem? Did he have any distinct duties bestowed upon him that none of the other disciples had been given? I'm going to give you a hint. It was bequeathed to him, yes. Yes! That was beautiful. Yes, as a matter of fact, John at the cross, if you remember, Jesus says, son, behold your mom. I mean, loose paraphrase, right? Mom, behold your son. And so I get the idea here that John's like, I need to get back to Jerusalem. He has a very specific duty. And I think that that's a really cool thing. And by the way, can I say as a side note, never leave what is distinctly yours for something others can do. Don't just get so heady to think that that's you. I'm a dad. I'm the only dad my two children have. I'm the only husband that my wife has, at least that I'm aware of. And I would never want to orphan and widow them for a ministry that other people God can do. Always know the things God has made distinctly for you. And so let's say John's now of the picture, and let's just give him the best light. John's actually doing what he's supposed to do. But Peter, on the other hand, now is dangerously anonymous. You do know how dangerous that is, right? You're in a place, nobody knows who you are. But Peter, we read, he comes through, and he comes down to the area of Lydda. Now, follow me on this. And I'm sorry, if I'd have known, I would have tried to come up with great graphics, but how do you compete with what we just saw with the kids? If this is Samaria, and this is Jerusalem, you could do this, and I'm assuming that's what John did. Peter instead has gone here and he's gone this way, southwest, 
to the area of Lida. Today that's called Lod, by the way, for what it's worth. Now, let's kind of put it into perspective. That's kind of like you want to go from here to London, but instead you've gone to Dartford on your way. Can we agree it's out of the way? But you can still kind of hit it and then kind of go due west, if you will, and make your way to London. That's kind of the idea. Lida, by the way, 97 kilometers from Samaria, is 15 kilometers outside of Tel Aviv today. It's the last fork at which you can then take the straight route to Jerusalem from. So it's out of the beaten path, but not terribly out of the way. Lod today, by the way, is, one of, is about 30% Arab. It is traditionally, well, if you've ever seen areas around an airport, it's one of the working man's area. Had been all this time. In fact, uh, it wasn't that long ago that Ben Gurion Airport, the major airport in Israel, was called Lida Airport. It's about eight kilometers north of there. But we know Lida from something else as Brits. Does anyone know why Lida or Lod has such an important tradition within? Come on now. I'm, I'm actually Britarican, right? I'm a, I'm a citizen of both countries. I would expect you to have this, not me. It was the birthplace of, traditionally, St. George. And, by the way, also considered the place of his martyrdom. There you go. Well, look at verse 33 with me. There he found a certain man. The word found, by the way, Yerisko, like Yorika, but Yerisko, means to come upon. Here's the problem. And I won't bore you too much with grammar, but it's the second aorist indicative. Now, all that means, it's active, which means you make a choice in it. How do you stumble upon something but actively do so? Active means you make the action happen. Passive means it happens to you. If I pick up this remote and I throw it at Johnny, I've made the action happen. I can actively throw this. Can we agree? If Johnny gets beamed in the head with it, all he has to do is nothing. He passively receives that action, if you will. To actively do something means you make the choice. You'll follow me on this. So how do you actively stumble upon or come upon something? Well, listen to the difference. There is passive, complete passive, like you're walking and you stumble and you find a 20 pound note on the pavement. You did nothing, you weren't looking for it. And you were like, hey, stood out, my, my, my happy day. Can we all agree? It would be a nice day. So there's that. Then there's, on the other side, the active side of just trying to find something beyond the hunt. Like, for instance, finding that your keys are in your, yes, last night's trousers after looking in the fridge beforehand because you were completely lost to find them. Now, that's an active hunt. But to mix the two, have you ever known anyone that's a shopaholic? I mean, they just, shopping is like their therapy. And, you show, and they show up at a new mall with them. It's like, their eyes go wide open, and it's like, they're in this place, they don't know what they're looking for, but their eyes are open, and they're just scanning everything. Some of you who used to live sort of the nightlife know that that's sort of the way people were on the prowl in some of the places you would have hung. In the third case, you're actively looking, but you don't know necessarily what you're stumbling upon, but you kind of have an idea. We might say it this way, they had, they had his, he had his radar on. And that's the idea here of Peter. That Peter now is on his way down, he's taking the long road home, 
and there his radar is on, and he's sort of, a, we use the acronym REAL in regards to God looking for real Christians, and the R, by the way, uh, we'll talk about this, is being ready. And so being ready, he is expectant, and we sort of get that idea that, God, I just want to be ready, and I want to be expectant for what you have for me. A is available, and L is leadable. My God, make me that person. And that's where Peter is in the situation. So here is Peter. He's on his way down, and he's looking, and he's kind of... And somewhere in all of this, he sees this book. What do we know about him? His name, first of all, Aeneas. We do know that the town he's in is Lodha, and Lidha, by the way, means strife. Who wants to live there? And what we know about him, now I'm going to ask you to read things really carefully in verse 33. How long has he been paralyzed? Ooh, look at what it says. He was, what are we sure he was for eight years? Bedridden, thank you, way to be careful. What we do read is he was bedridden for eight years and was paralyzed. Do you see the difference there? Why is that so important that God would make that clear? 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, the two most common causes for paraplegia. Anyone want to guess? One should be common, would be kind of the no-brainer. The most common that somebody that wasn't a paraplegic but now has become a paraplegic is trauma. You fell off the roof, something happened, you hurt your spine, now all of a sudden your legs aren't working. Can we agree that's a simple option to that? It's the second one we would miss. The second one is syphilis. Now, the difference is radical because in a case of trauma, things happen immediately. You've severed the spine. The moment that that happens, or at least within a very short period of time, there you are now, you're unable to walk. Are you following me on this? So why does God give it to us this way? Because it makes clear which one of these he was actually the product of. He had been bedridden, that we know, for eight years. But now, however long it doesn't tell us, he's paralyzed. That tells me he is now the product of a process that has stuck him, laid him down eight years ago, but at this point he can no longer walk at all. Now the reason I say that is I'm painting a picture of a guy that's a mess, who's filthy. Obviously, no, we, we, we don't read anybody else's around him, Peter, we don't read, nobody brought this guy to Peter. We don't read any of that. What we read is somewhere in this, this man, unable to get up, more than likely considered cursed, regardless of the case. Many people, if they had known him and this was the case, would have said, you've earned this. That Peter comes to him because this man could never have come to Peter. And there's no argument over the situation. We do know this, look at verse 34. Peter says to him, Aeneas. What that tells me is Peter calls him by name. Did you notice that? I have a simple request of you, and I don't know how common it is here in Maidstone versus in London, but we have a great deal of rough sleepers, which is nothing compared to Los Angeles, where there are over, the last we heard, 85,000 rough sleepers in uh, Los Angeles. That is a lot of people to walk past. 
And the first thing that I ask always with each person, God, is this someone you would have me speak with? And the first thing I ask is, what's your name? Because you get so dehumanized in those circumstances that people forget that you're human. I still go looking for those guys, and I'll return now to London here. There's some of those guys, I can tell you about Andrew and his six kids and how he's from Romania. And when he came and the situations that transpired and how we would sit over, we'd go and we'd get a burger every other week between him and I. Christopher and Yade. Always the men, by the way. But the idea of really being able to sit and hear and pray with people that all of a sudden realize that they are human. And the only reason I say that is Peter somehow, we don't know how in this, we don't read that he was divinely told, but maybe, somewhere in all of this, wants to make sure that this man knows that God knows his name. And our God is a dignity restorer. Don't you know that? For some of us, that means more to us than others, I'm sure. But how God can take us at our filthiest and our grossest and our nastiest and still speak and say, hey, I know your name. Jesus the Christ heals you. Peter doesn't say this is Simon Peter's divine power hour. Christ is the one. So get, just get up. And what we read is, he arose immediately. Love is expensive, inconvenient, even painful and thankless often, but it is so absolutely worth it. And Peter, taking the long route home, has met an individual, and God says, let's highlight this one person that may have been overlooked by a whole bunch of people. But look at verse 35. So all who dwelt in Lid and Shalfon saw him and turned to the Lord. What Peter would have missed had he not done this, or what you might have missed. If, have you ever been in a hurry but you have no place to be? Like you have to get there but you don't even know why and you're not even sure in some cases where there is? We've watched people have total meltdowns because they've missed an underground train, but the next one comes in three minutes. And when you get to speak to them on that train, you realize they don't even have a place to be. We get so caught up in the destination, we forget about the journey. The Shorachon plain goes from the mount, the base of Mount Kamel, down to the northern tip of Yoffa. It is an area twice the size of Maidstone, but five times its population. Don't miss this. Because one guy meets up with one guy that was in a very bad way. And this one guy is so profoundly touched that all of Maidstone five times over turns to Jesus. So what if that's you? What if you're the person, and look, there are people that are flamethrowers. Do you know what I mean? It's like you talk to them and they're like... And they just, everybody's going to get, somehow is going to get scorched by their passion for Christ. But then there are other people, they're spark flickers. You might be a bit more mild, but you're doing this 
the issue, you just never know, but the issue is, is if you're faithful at either, either one of those can start a wildfire. And we come now from California, where wildfires are our specialty. Do you know that you can fit the entire UK two and a half times in California? Just putting perspective to it. Do you know that roughly three quarters of the UK in surface area was on fire last year in California? We know how to start a good fire. So what if today God says, what's your name, sir? Sorry? Brian. Okay, I almost thought you said bro. I was like, hey, bro. So what if Brian, what if today God says, Brian, that person, and he flicks a spark, but that spark ignites the pilot light on a flamethrower like this guy, and the next thing you know, what if the mountain were the unsavedness of Maidstone? And today, and today, things started to change. Now, we don't know what the period of time is here. But do you ever look at somebody and go, this could be the person that transforms all of Mainstone, and at this moment, they're in front of an Iceland just trying to get a tuppence? But we can't stop here as much as I'd like to because I need you to see the opposite side of it with the next one. Now, I remind you, Peter can go at this point, he can go due east and make his way to Jerusalem. But we read this in verse 36. Take a look at it with me. At Yorpa, there was a certain disciple. Now, the last person does not seem to be a disciple, but rather the opposite, a person dying of syphilis. Now we've read of a disciple. Can we agree that we think that those two people were on opposite sides of the spectrum? Her name is Tabitha. Tabitha, by the way, is Aramaic. That's, a, that's if you will, a, Greek, uh, a Hebrew derivative. Dorcas is Greek, which, by the way, Luke will side with because Luke is actually a Gentile. We know that from Colossians chapter 4. He says, there's this girl. Her name is Tabitha, which you guys aren't going to know that because that's Aramaic, so let me give you the Greek, Dorcas, which means gazelle or odir. And we read, this woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, of which she did. So on one side, we might say we had heinous anus, and on this side, we have good deeds Dorcas. So they're pretty much the opposite sides of the spectrum. Because maybe, maybe, maybe you're the person that goes, I can jive with this guy. I, can, I think of myself like this guy. You know, this guy, he's a mess, he's rough, things are icky, and God would still send someone to this individual. But maybe you're like, Psh, this is what I've always thought of Christianity. It's for a bunch of weak, loser people that have nothing else to turn to. Well, then look at why God gives us a second example. This person is actually the opposite. She's a person full of good deeds. Now, can I say that for the majority of the Christian church, have you ever heard someone give their testimony and it's like, I used to punch nuns and I kicked children and I threw puppies in the water and you know, all that kind of stuff. And you're like, well, sure. And then you feel like as a, as a Christian, you're like, I feel like I have no testimony. You almost feel like you have to make something up to become, you know, you're like, well, once I told my mom, no, you know, I mean, there's something because you, you know, you see such a radical change with this individual, but please hear me. The majority of the world does not think of themselves like that individual. You're the ones who blew the cover. You're the ones who called the bluff. Because you know what you probably thought was you were a good person. I was basically a good person. 
I did most of this stuff. I obeyed the laws. I paid my taxes. If I actually walked out and I thought I hadn't paid with something, I might walk back in. That's definitely my wife, by the way. I'm from the... I'm... I'm I'm ex-heinous anus, is what I... And the reason I say that is, is that when someone's like, I'm basically a good person, you blow the cover and say, you know, I thought I was that, but I was still empty. I did nice things, but it didn't fulfill me. I chased after and accomplished and achieved and obtained, and it still didn't fulfill me because it wasn't enough. Do you know how desperately Maidstone needs to hear that? So this woman, she was of good works, charitable deeds, which she did, by the way, that means she was literally actions of our missions of compassion. She was a decent individual. Verse 37, it happened in those days, these pivotal days, that she became sick and died. Notice the similarity between them. They both digressed. They both hit some kind of sickness. He bedridden to paralysis. She, sickness to death. Both digressed to a place of total helplessness. But the way that they were treated seemed to be radically different. It said in verse 37, when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. She washed and elevated. He, street stanky. And I just wonder if Peter, looking, could see the church in this example. Something once thriving, once healthy, but now this dead thing in front of him, like Jesus would say, of a church that had receded to simple tradition without relationship and called them whitewashed tombs in Matthew 23, 26. Verse 38, since Yopa was, or Lida was near Yopa, it's 23 kilometers south and further away, so further away. So now he has to head in the opposite direction. And so they sent two people to him. Now, don't miss this because Peter had to come across the stinky A in this guy, but this person, he was sequestered. Do you see the difference? And I look at this and I start to think, now wait a minute. This is really a radical different thing. It would be, now here you are, you're in Maidstone, you're going to head to, to London, but instead you go via Dartford, but now at this point you get an invitation from Chelmsford. Can we all agree? That's just now flat out of the way. So at this point, there's no part of you that thinks, well, I'm actually en route to London. Well, that's the idea here. So he gets this invitation. Now he gets an invitation, and what they're going to say is, please do not delay in coming, but she's dead. Now, can I just say, up to this point, there's been a lame man that's been healed at Gate Beautiful in chapter 4. Sick and demonized have been transformed in chapter 5 of the book of Acts at Solomon's porch. And then we have this lame Aeneas character who had been transformed in chapter 9. That's all we've seen as far as miracles in the book of Acts so far. And the reason I say that is, there have been no raisings of the dead yet. How would you like to be the first person someone comes to and says, hey, I noticed that God's healing through you. Could you raise my dead grandpa or my dead granddaughter? Which one of you would think, yes, I want to be the first one to do that? Or which one of you would think, there's another disciple with that in there somewhere? Quick question, and this picks up rather. There are 10 resurrection events in all of Scripture. Some of you are aware of that. Three of them are in the Old Testament. Can anyone tell me 
any resurrections in the Old Testament. It's okay. You don't have to, but... Excellent. The Shunammite son and Zarephath's widow's son. So that's two of them. They all kind of revolve around the same character, by the way. The other one was actually quite a bit of a surprise. They threw bones in a tomb of Elijah, and the guy came back to life because they were in the middle of a fight. Okay, how about in the Gospels? There are, outside of Jesus, the most important one, there are four. Can anyone tell me what those are? Anyone? The widow of Nain's son. Excellent. What's that? Lazarus? Yes. Our homeboy, by the way, another guy who all kinds of people get saved through. Yeah, Lazarus' daughter. Excellent. Yes. Now, the last one's a little bit... It's a batch of people on an event. Yeah, at the, right. At the resurrection, a bunch of Old Testament saints go and walk around the city during Passover. Now, can we all agree that would be a very strange event? There you are. You've left the captive. You were for Elijah. Actually, that'll happen 500 years later. But you're having Passover, celebrating, and all of a sudden, like, great Uncle Shemai shows up, and he's like, hey, is there a seat for me? Do you got any gefilte fish? I mean, how crazy would that be? As testimony, by the way, of Jesus leading those from the grave. The only reason I say that is there is precedent for resurrection. There's just not precedent in the book of Acts yet. So what if God calls you to do something? I'm going to pick on Brian, poor guy who got the front seat. And God says, Brian, I'm going to call you to do something that clearly is in league with my scripture but has never been seen before in Maidstone. Would he bite on it? Would Ian bite on it? Would Hannah bite on it? Would you bite on it? Isn't our God big enough to do that? But you're like, but what if I fail? You already are. If you're saying no to God, you've already failed. The question really isn't whether you fail, it's who are you fearing failing? So, notice it says, Peter arose and he went with them, verse 39. When they had come, they brought him to the upper room. Upper room? When was the last time Peter was in the upper room? Ah, when God empowered them to become what? Witnesses. And Peter spoke and 3,000 people came to Christ. Now he's in an upper room and what does he see? A dead body. And they stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made when she was with him. Interesting. In the first case, did Aeneas do anything to earn Peter's attention? As a matter of fact, he would have been somebody that, if you were gauging by worthiness, he would have probably been an easily overlooked individual. Can we agree? But don't you find it interesting with this individual, they're trying to actually show her worthiness, like she, why would it be so important for Peter to give her attention? Though they both get personal attention. And Peter's just trying to evidence and be the evidence of Christ. What about you? Are there a group of people maybe that would be like, well, they're clearly worthy of my attention and my ministry, but others that you would be like, nah, I don't really know. I'm probably not gonna get anything from them, but maybe cholera. Do you realize how, what a great example we have here? Notice verse 40, Peter put them all out. I think he learned this from Jesus, by the way, with Yerus. When, by the way, they had professional weepers. Traditionally, by the way, and I won't try to pick on anyone, I'm just stating fact. Do you know who the two groups that were hired the most to be professional criers in the Middle East 2,000 years ago? Widows 
and teen girls. Take that where you want it. But I do know this. Peter shows up much like Jesus did in, Ma in Matthew 9 with Yerus, and with that, they're all weeping and they're crying, which means he's been dead long enough for them to be able to hire your criers. And he puts them all out of the room. Like Jesus did with, uh, in Luke 8, where we'll read, it'll only be Peter, James, and John, which means Peter was one of the few in a tight audience with Jesus when he kicked everyone else out to do this. And he knelt down and he prayed. But notice what it says. So here, now read this with me, because I love it when we get careful. Verse 40. Peter put them all out, and he knelt down and he prayed, and turning to the body, he said, what position was Peter in when he was praying? Can anyone tell me? He was kneeling. In what direction? In regards to Tabitha. He was away from her. Did you notice that? Because he's going to have to turn. If you turn to the body, then he was away from the body in the first place. Are you all with me on that? Now, the reason I say that is I learned something from this text. Have you ever had something that seems impossible? It's a problem, and God does have to fix it. But you're so transfixed that all you can do is stare at the problem. Even when you're praying, you're like trying to pray, but you're kind of praying while you're swatting away the flies of the problem. Peter got a moment, and I do like this. He turned away from it for a moment, so all he could see was the Lord. He's like, I need this time with you first. Before I even take a deep look at this, I mean, how much do you need to know about a dead body? It's dead. No pulse. There's no breath. She dead. I've got the information I need here. All right, Lord, what do you want to do? How do, we, how do we do this? I've been called. I've come. I'm trusting you. The Lord says, all right, turn around and call her name. Now, you do know that when God tends to raise people from the dead, that there's always a specific name called, right? The, the joke of Jesus had just said, you know, arise instead of Lazarus arise. We'd have had a whole bunch of dead people running around that aren't dead anymore. So he turns to the girl, and notice with both Anus and Tabitha, and by the way, I do find interesting, Luke calls her Dorcas, but Peter calls her Tabitha. Did you notice that? Remember, Tabitha is Aramaic. That's, if you will, sort of the evolution of Hebrew. And that's, Peter's a good Jewish boy. And he turns to the girl and he calls her, both cases they're called by name. The filthiest, if you will, to good deed Dorcas, both called by name, and he says, Tabitha, rise. And she wakes up. She sits up. Now, can you imagine being dead, waking up, and all of a sudden Peter's on your bed? <laughs> that would, I'd sit up. And he gave her his hand, lifted her up, and when he called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. So let's bring this to close, beloved. Look at verse 42. It became known throughout all Yopa. I remind you that's the outer lip of the plain of Shechom, and many believed on the Lord. In both cases, God used both to start revivals. Did you see that? Do you ever think God only starts revivals from people like Aeneas? Because after all, that guy was filthy and nasty. When God changes them, everybody stands up and takes notice. But you're like, but I don't feel like that person. That's not me. I'm, I'm kind of Dorcas. I felt like a Dorcas my whole life. Here's the cool thing. 
If you're the only living thing in the morgue, everyone's going to notice. And it doesn't matter whether you're blonde or brunette or shiny domed. I'm looking generally, not specifically. Because those things are less relevant than the fundamental issue that there's something living here amongst things that are not. And in this beautiful text, there's a guy who took the long road home who was more into the journey at the moment than he was the destination, with his radar on. And in one case, he's sequestered. In another case, he actively comes upon. But in both cases, Jesus does a miracle. Now, I don't know where you're at today, but we really only break up into two categories according to Scripture, those who have accepted the gift of Jesus Christ and those who have not. We all start in the same category. We're all desperately in need and helpless of salvation. Let's just be honest. So it really doesn't matter in that sense. And do you realize only with Jesus the playing field is level? You're aware of that, right? I mean, only with Christ, whether you were a person who you were best friends with Billy Graham and the Pope sends you, you know, Christmas cards, you know, greetings from St. Peter's, or whatever the case would be, and you've memorized every catechism and so forth, or whether you're the individual that was living in the barrow somewhere shooting heroin and stealing to get your fix, the bottom line is we're all spiritually dead and only a God of life can make us alive. So it doesn't, now I'm not saying that being raised in the church has, doesn't have benefit. Paul would speak of that about those who were raised in the law. It's sort of like this. If we told our children we were going to Disneyland, they have the joy of the journey as well as the destination. But if we picked up somebody en route, didn't know where they were going, and they went to Disneyland, they would all enjoy Disneyland, but a couple of them enjoyed the ride there. And if you were raised in the church, praise God if it was healthy. Because you already know the depth already of what's got waiting you to some degree. But we all get to enjoy it together. So whether today you were somebody who was from one background or the other extreme or the other, the good news is, we all stand before God, and here's the craziest thing. God has offered us complete absolution of all of our debt, and there's our problem. That's why I can't pay yours, because spiritually I'm in debt too. So it not only can be somebody that isn't in debt, but somebody wealthy enough to pay all of ours. God knowing the only person qualified is himself, clothes himself in flesh, takes your and my debt upon his shoulders and dies on a cross so that it all can be paid perfectly. Do you know that I didn't want to be a Christian? At 19, I studied every religion I could as an intellectual, if you will, always with a taste for the exotic. And let me say this, please. Everything broke down in seeking, not only being objective, being prejudiced against Christianity, because what I saw was plastic and superficial. What I didn't see was real Christianity. What I saw was the stuff you see on TV often, which looks a little bit like a game show. But this is what I saw when I actually started looking at the documents, is that everything deals with the fact we're mucked up. You were aware of that, right? It doesn't matter where we start. Every one of them says we've got a problem. So who makes the move? In everything else, you make the move, and hopefully something on the other side says it's good enough. You wear it, that's everyone else. Scripturally, God made the move and gives you the choice to say it's good enough. 
You do see the difference, right? So then if you lined up everything and thought they were real, though I don't agree that everything's real, but even if you did, and you said, which one of these thought of me, considered me, offered to pay for me, volunteered and wanted to take my punishment? Only one step forward. You're aware of that, right? Buddha did not suffer with me on his mind. Muhammad did not conquer with me on his mind. But Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd and I call my sheep by name. And for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. So if all of them were lined up only one step forward, and that was the one that said, I want you and I'll prove it on the cross. But here's the best part. If I were to line them all up and say which one was qualified to do so. Do you know that the Quran says there was only one perfect person, and that was Jesus? Do you know that? If you lined up every one of them and said which one of these was qualified to pay, it would have to be somebody who didn't have their own debt to pay. The only one that qualified is the only one that volunteered. Aren't you thankful? So the real question is, where do you want to be? If you've never accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, I'm going to give you that choice today. If you're not sure, you can walk out of here sure. God gives you the dignity of choice because love isn't love without a choice. Can we agree? But that choice is simple. Jesus said, I paid the price on the cross for your guilt so you don't have to stand before the Father in judgment guilty because the guilt has already been punished. And you can say yes to that. How do I know that that was acceptable? Because God did the one thing that no man can do on his own, raise them from the dead. It was for those older of us, it was the way of proving the check cleared. Is that brief moment when you tap and you wait for it to say approved. Does that make sense? And his death was the tap and the resurrection says approved. The question is whether you'll say yes. Now, if you say no, I understand, and I'm going to be mean, or I'm just going to be honest to say, it's only pride now. What else? Why would somebody not take such a gift but pride? And the problem with that is kindness, grace is only biblical. You're aware of that. No other religion has it. And grace is reliant on the kindness of the giver, not on the deservedness of the recipient. So you don't have to earn it. You never will. Isn't that great? But you receive it. So there's two sets of ears as we bring this to prayer. There is on one side the sent servant. That's any believer who is expected. And my challenge to you is, God, make us real. Ready, expectant, available, leadable. Will I take the slow road home when I can? Will I keep my radar on? Will I be willing to be that real? Will I recognize that I could be robbing myself from great stories that God wants to tell through me if I don't? And I wonder what sparks could be flicked upon the kindering of another human heart that could start a wildfire today. Because that I want to pray for every believer. But whether you're heinous heinous today, or you're good deed Dorcas, we've all eroded to helplessness. And we're all called, and Jesus is seeking to call you by name, and how do I know that? Because he sent a goofball from America now here to speak with you today, and you showed up. Don't blame me. I didn't make you come. But they both saw deliverance because he's a full-spectrum Savior. And I ask you this as we pray. What if today you catch that spark and you become the flamethrower?
The greatest evangelist, it seems, in the New Testament was a former Christian killer. Because God has this way with dealing with transformed troublemakers. So what if Maidstone is the tinder and so winning your flame today? Wouldn't that be awesome? Pray with me, would you please? Today in this room, God, I thank you for meeting us here, for walking us through this text. And my prayer is simple, God, first, for every believer here who has said yes to you, that you keep us from being the church complacent, devolving to earthly comforts while the world around us is dying and hopeless and desperate. Ignite us today. May this spark fly and land upon the tinder of their heart today. And may we be ignited, God, to see you do something profound in our lives. Let, turn on our radar. Let us not be in such a hurry that we miss the opportunities that you put before us. And ignite this church to be a world-transforming church, the agent of change in this community and beyond. And I pray that we would do more than take this as information. We would allow your Holy Spirit to work with it to make a transformation here today. But within this moment of honest reckoning, if there be any who have not accepted the gift of Jesus, aren't sure that they've accepted the gift of Jesus, or today would like to renew their vows in regards to following Jesus, I'm going to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen so you know I'm not leading you in something daft or weird or whatever. Weird, yes, but only in the best of ways. And at the end of it, if you agree, I ask you to give a resounding, confident amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let those words be my words now. So be it in my life. And here's the prayer. Father God in heaven, I come to you guilty as all men are guilty. A sinner, as all men are sinners. But your Bible says you love sinners so much that you punished the sin to free the sinner. And as your Bible promised, your only begotten Son Jesus the Christ died on that cross to punish every misdeed in my heart, in my mind, that it could be permanently vanquished. And just like Scripture promised, he was buried, rose on the third day, and offers me now the dignity of choice to receive that payment on my behalf. So today, in the sanctity of this moment, I say yes. I may not understand everything, but I understand this. If you're willing to pay my bill, I would be a fool to say no. So I accept your gift, confessing Jesus, as my ransom 
my Redeemer, and in handing you my life in repentance, I confess Jesus as my resurrected Lord. Take my life now and lead me. I'm yours. In Jesus' name. And if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen.